Okay, it's time for our sermon this morning, and I hope you have your Bibles with you. Uh, time to look in God's Word again and be blessed because of those words that He recorded for us and that He preserved for us and that we have in our hands. So we're looking at Micah chapter 6 again this morning, and we're looking at Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8, which is a continuation of last week. Um, I was uh, I thought originally I'd probably do two sermons on this, but you guys know me. Uh, it's pretty hard for me to do three verses and two sermons. Um, it looks like I'm going to be doing a few more. Um, we started looking at when I started looking at uh, doing justly and love mercy and walking humbly with God, I started to realize um, I probably didn't have enough time to do all three together. So today we're doing to do justly. Let's uh, let's read God's word this morning. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's uh, commit this time to him, and uh, I pray that he teaches us something very valuable today. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can learn from it this morning, but we pray that our teacher this morning would be your Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that our hearts would be open to your truth, that we'd be willing, Father, to not just to listen, but to do those things which you have uh, told us to do, to do those things which are good in your sight. And Father, I pray that you would grant us grace and wisdom this morning, that we might be more fully uh, like your Son in our lives, that we will grow closer to you during this time and in the coming days. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, um, last week we looked at the first two verses of this particular passage, which provided us the things that God does not want or the things that he is not pleased with and, the, and it started with a question, wherewith shall I come before the Lord? Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Um, uh, how, how do I come before God? Well, in what manner? What do I bring with me? <clears throat> and what do I bring to, uh, to, to come into a right relationship with God, to stand before Him and be accepted by Him? And so then the, 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 the question was, all right, or the, the option was, well, do I come before him with all these burnt offerings and calves and, and things that, that are sacrifices? Do I bring him thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Um, can I even, if to show how much uh, I love him and how much, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing for him, even given my firstborn child? God doesn't want any of that. In fact, um, we discovered that God is not pleased with sacrifices and gifts. In fact, over and over in the Bible, it tells us that God would rather we be good and honest and obedient and loving and caring rather than doing all the sacrifices. That's a bit like, and I likened it to the laws that are created in, uh, in a nation or in our state, for example, in Victoria. You have a, um, a, a speeding limit of us, let's say 100 kilometers, um, and that's designed, or those things are designed to keep us a bit safer. So rather than someone going along at 100, the next person coming along at 200, and if they have an accident, they wipe out who knows how many people, um, it would be silly for the government to say, all right, I'm just going to give you fines 
So, um, so every time you have an accident, um, uh, you can just keep us paying as fines because we're going to make money. Well, that's, that's not. For any type of government who's benevolent at all, they don't want people killing themselves in the roads. Um, and God is more benevolent than any other uh, government or any other human on this planet. He, does, he wants our good. So when he gives us laws, he wants those laws, us to understand them, to protect us. <clears throat> so God is not pleased when we just sin and then we pay the fine after, which is what sacrifices essentially were. Um, he wants us to obey those laws. He wants, he's, he wants us to understand that if bringing sacrifices and gifts to him and all the, the stuff that, that we, people do to actually appease God and to make him happy with us, he doesn't want those if those things are a, simply a, a pretext or a context for us to continue uh, sinning and not having a right relationship with him. I shared with you last week that it that bringing things to God, paying God um, through certain uh, means, um, giving gifts to God. He doesn't need our gifts. God does not need the sacrifices. He doesn't want all those things. God wants us to put him first to, in our lives. He wants us to love him. That's what he wants. He wants us to do those things which are right. Um, the things the things that he forbids, the things that he, he says don't do, are told to us for our good and our benefit and because they go against his nature. So if we obey those things, we're conforming more to his nature rather to our fallen nature. That's the reason that every country on this planet has to have laws. Every country has laws. Every country has police force. Every country has prisons because by nature... People um, are sinners. They're lawbreakers. It just, it just, uh, it's a, it's a fact of life. Um, without you take away the police force, take away a judicial system from any country, and the only thing you're left with eventually is anarchy. People then realise they can do whatever they want, and many people will go haywire. So um, it's important for every country to have laws to to run properly and to protect the weak. And this, this morning we're looking at, okay, we've, we've learned what God does not want from us, he, he, what he's not pleased with. This morning we are looking at what God does want from us and what he is pleased with. And it says that he declared and declares in verse 8 that God has shown us, O oh man, what is good and what he does require of us. So what God requires of us is good. God has shown us the good, and he requires the good from us. So let's, let's ask this first question. How did he show it? It says there in verse 8 that he showed us, sorry, um, he showed us the good. Um, how did he show it to us? Well, you might say it's a reasonable question to ask. If he says he's shown it, where did he show it? Well, he's shown it in a number of ways. He's shown it at the beginning of this chapter that we're just reading now. So in verse 3 and 4, He's, if you remember last week, God was almost pleading and, and, uh, and, and, um, and demonstrating a case against Israel. And he says in verse 3, O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Why are you tired of me? Testify against me. So God invites their, their, uh, their case against him. Why have they turned away from him? Why are they doing things now that, that he's told them not to do? He says in verse 4, For I have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of servants 
And I have sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Uh, God says, I saved you from Egypt. You were slaves for all those years. You, you cried out to me to save you. I sent you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. I saved you from a nation that was much stronger than you would ever be. And I redeemed you. You were slaves to that nation. What haven't I fulfilled as part of my promise? All I've asked you to do is to do good as I've brought you into, into the promised land and you failed to do that. <clears throat> so God demonstrated and showed already that he's kept his part of the bargain. He's kept his promises. And he says, okay, well, how am I showing it to you? That's one way that God has shown the good because he's kept his promises and he's done good to them. He's also shown it through his own character. And God has consistently shown himself to be faithful to all of his promises, not just the saving of Israel from Egypt, but he's continued to be patient and kind. And as the ultimate judge of all, he's always dealt justly with mankind. He's always sought the good of mankind. Um, when he, when Solomon and Gomorrah, and Solomon and Gomorrah is used as an example of a, a city that had, had run amok, essentially, or to, a twin city that had run amok, that their sin had become so bad that God had to actually intervene. God doesn't like to intervene very much in the affairs of mankind. But the sin and the atrocities that were going on in that city had reached such a level that God said, time to intervene. But there was one problem. Lot... And his family were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so when God comes down and visits the earth, and he comes with two angels, Abraham, God says, well, I, am I going to hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And when he says to Abraham, uh, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham's mind immediately goes, my nephew. My nephew's in that town. And so he begins to ask God, well, God, are you going to kill the good with the bad? Are you going to destroy those that are righteous with the, with the unrighteous? And he begins to intervene. And most of you know this story. He starts off with a certain amount. He goes lower and lower and lower. You know, and would, you, would you intervene you know, for, for 20, for 10? Anyway, so we get to Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. And the reason that Abraham can intervene with God, the reason that he comes to God with an expectation, even, even when the judge is about to hit down the gavel and say, guilty, and the sentence is. Abraham says this to God in Genesis 18.25. He says, that be far from thee to do after this manner. That's, that's not something you would do, is it? To slay the righteous with the wicked? And that the righteous should be as the wicked? So you treat the righteous as the wicked? That be far from thee? And then he finishes with this particular question. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham asked a rhetorical question of God. God knew he was going to ask him that question. And he knew that the obvious answer to that question was yes. God doesn't treat the righteous the same as the wicked. God doesn't judge and sweep away the, the righteous with the wicked. And for those of you who know the rest of that story, God sends those two angels not only to be the witness against what's happening over there, but they, they take Lot and his family out 
of Sodom and Gomorrah before this destruction comes down. So God, once again, kept his promise and showed his character. And how has God shown his character most fully? How has God shown that which is good most fully? Well, he's shown it in the life of his son, Jesus Christ. It was God himself as the judge, as the just judge, who willingly went to the cross and bore the judgment of a sinful world at Calvary. That's a just judge. A judge who not only condemns the evil, but he's actually stepped in to pay for the evil. Jesus Christ manifested God's perfect character during his life. And that character demonstrates that God is faithful, he is merciful, he's forgiving, he's loving, he's kind, he's generous. He keeps his promises. And he loves justice. He loves justice. Psalm 89.14 says, Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. Mercy and truth shall go before thy face. That's the God who we believe in. Justice and judgment are the habitation of thy throne. God sees himself and demonstrates consistently that he is the perfect judge. And the God who seeks justice for all, his desire is that his own people would do the same. See, I'm showing you the good. I'm showing you what, what sin is like. I'm showing you that I'm a, a patient God, but I'm a just God. And so in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee. He requires of us the good. And he describes that good now. Because he tells it to us in three separate uh, phrases. To do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. They're the three good that he lists in this particular passage of what he has shown us already. And if Jesus showed us uh, one thing, apart from his love and the amazing grace, he showed us that he was very humble as well. Even though he was the God of the universe, he was a very humble person. He was meek and lowly, he said. And God's call for justice is repeated a number of times in the Bible. God loves justice. He wants ju not only justice to be done, but he wants his own people to be just. And just as Micah chapter 6 verse 8 says he, he requires the good to do justly, which is what we're focusing on this morning, Proverbs 21 verse 3 says to do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. To do justice and judgment is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So once again, God repeats those things which are important to him. He doesn't want us sacrificing all the time. He doesn't want us paying for our sins. In fact, he paid for all of our sins. God wants us to live just lives that judge fairly. Now, I want you to pay attention to the word before justice or before justly. And it's the word do. He wants us to do justly. Justice, in God's eyes, is a doing word. It's not a state of mind. It's not a feeling or a general disposition towards everyone else. No, justice is done in the everyday choices of his people. God wants his people to make good choices, which then 
determines what they do. You can choose to lie or you can choose to tell the truth. You can choose to steal or you can choose to give. You can choose to afflict or you can choose to heal. You can choose to hate. You can choose to love. You can choose to destroy or you can choose to build up. Justice can be exemplified in a person's choices and so can injustice. The choice is ours. If you're a child of God this morning, then you have a choice. The people of this world don't have much of a choice with those things. Often they'll, they'll go along with whatever was feeling right at the time. Justice also costs a person. You see, pe people rarely involve themselves in matters which cost them in order to achieve justice for someone else. Let me illustrate. Imagine you were walking down the street and you saw a number of school children beating up and bullying another child that was, that was cowering in a corner and seemed terrified. So you, these, these maybe four or whatever it is are beating them up, are hitting them, are, are making fun of them and you have this small child, this little child who's crying in a corner. If you're like me, your sense of justice should be kicking in right now and you've probably imagined yourself what you do. You'd probably intervene. You'd push the, the, the children away. So you'd say, get away, and then you'd go and comfort the child. Well, good on you. Yes, the right thing to do. We have a sense of justice that's, that's built into us. But now imagine, imagine that a homeless man, scruffy, unkempt, maybe much bigger than you even, was being beaten by a bunch of youths, not school children, but 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds. Would you intervene in that situation? All of a sudden, things become a little bit different now. Would I intervene? Well, it might cost me here. Maybe they might start beating me up. All right, well, let's think of something else then. What about if that person had been beaten up? And you don't know necessarily what they're like, but they're there in a corner. Yeah, what about if they have been harmed? Would we stop and involve ourselves with them and check up on them to make sure that they are okay? Would you, if necessary, put them in your car and bring them to a hospital? Maybe you would you intervene and see whether they, they've eaten enough. Maybe they, they were passing out because they hadn't eaten properly. You see, that one costs a lot more. The, the shooing children away doesn't cost very much. Not much, not much uh, uh, at risk there, not much at stake. But the second one costs more. And automatically, our minds automatically justify why we wouldn't do those things, why we wouldn't intervene. But justice is a practical thing with life consequences. Justice in a world filled with injustice sometimes means intervening. Intervening at a point where it costs you more. How does one do justly? Well, even though the Bible clearly teaches that all have fallen short of the glory of God and says that every person is a sinner, um, to do justly requires that you understand what God's concept of justice is. 
And if you have the Holy Spirit in your heart, if he, if he indwells in you, then he's teaching you what God's justice is. And through God's word, he's opening up your mind and understanding to that. So if you want to do justice, if you want to live justly, the first thing you need to do is to be saved. The most important thing you can do, the first step that you can take is to understand that you're a sinner Understand that you can't save yourself with any whatever sacrifice you might you might give and all the good works you might do. And understand that Jesus Christ came into the world to save you. And that you simply need to put your trust in him, repent of your sin, turn away from it, understand how evil it is, and look to him to save you from it. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you believe that he died for your sins and that blood cleanses you from all of your sins and that he rose again on the third day. If you believe that he is the son of God, the Bible says that once you've done that, you genuinely have done that, not just with the head, but with the heart. The Bible says that God saves you because you're no longer trying to save yourself. God saves you and he gives it to you as a gift, something you didn't deserve. And something that he maintains, not you. That's the first step. You want to do justly? That's the very first step that you need to understand. But in order for that to occur, in order for you to be saved, you must first believe in God that he himself is a righteous judge. And that he has every right to judge you for your sin. And that we, every person, is accountable to him as the perfect judge. He gives us not just the laws to, to obey on the road. He gives us all the moral laws. He tells us what's right and wrong. And we are accountable to him. Before you come to God for salvation, before you ever come to Jesus to, to rescue you from your sin, you need to first believe that God is the judge of all mankind. And you're the one who's going to be judged. <clears throat> God says and has revealed himself that he is a righteous judge. When we speak of justice, we often think of um, vulnerable people that are being taken advantage of or abused by other people. And that's probably a very common thing. And we see, see this thing played out in courts all over, the, all over the earth. In every country on earth, in every court, some person has got something a problem with another person, either because they've taken advantage of them, they've stolen from them, they've murdered a family member or whoever, whatever else they may have done. Someone has taken advantage of someone else who's in a vulnerable position and God hates it when people take advantage of other people, when people abuse weaker people. God hates injustice. He hates it. Let me share a portion of scripture which shows this. When God saved his, um, his uh, people from Egypt and brought them into a land that he had promised them, he gave them laws to live by. Laws that epitomize a society that would honor him and that would follow the standard that he wanted. That was, that was his justice, his righteousness, that which was good in his eyes. Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. And we'll read to verses 24 while I have a drink. Exodus 
Now, this is speaking to his own people. He's not speaking to people who don't believe in him. He's speaking to the people, Israel, that he had saved, and he, they, he wanted them to have a just society. Exodus 22, 21. Now, listen, to, this is, listen not just to the words, but to God's heart when it comes to justice. Thou, you people, shalt neither vex a stranger, which means which means to take advantage of them, afflict them, be be unkind to them, be nasty to them. Thou shalt neither vex a stranger, which means not the same as you, a different people, nor oppress them, nor oppress him. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Remember where you were all those years, and don't do the same to them that they did to you. Verse 22 says, You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Now listen to these words. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. How's that? This is how much God hates injustice in the world. To his own people, he says, if I hear one bit that you take advantage and you afflict and you oppress people that are vulnerable like widows and orphans, I am going to get so upset that I will judge you with death. If anyone this morning has any misconception that God will one day judge every crime and sin that's ever been committed by man, think again. God loves justice. The reason we need a saviour is because God is just and God has promised to bring to justice every sin and crime that's ever been committed. How? Well, if he doesn't judge it in this earth, in this lifetime, which he tells his people here, he's going to judge it after. God doesn't say that he'll stop every sin from happening. God doesn't say he'll, he'll, um, he'll intervene before an injustice is done. No, 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 because that would rob us of our free will. No, God says he promises to judge every sin and bring every sin under the light of his righteousness. God is a just God and he expects his people to be just. That's how seriously he takes it. And to do justice according to this is not just to not afflict a widow and an orphan or anyone else who's, who's, not, um, uh, who's vulnerable and weak. But it's to help them. You see, in those days, there was no, when they started in, in that country, there was no social services. It was an agricultural society. People had farms. People um, uh, grew their crops. Some people worked for other people. There was no pensions in those days. It's a very different society. But God wanted, in the most simple society, he wanted justice. And justice is understanding the commands of the Lord and appreciating their goodness. The commands of the Lord were never given to justify man. God never gave laws to say, oh, this is how good you are. Or how good I am before God, which is what people use law all the time for, which is wrong. 
God didn't give the Ten Commandments to say, oh, look, I've kept the Ten Commandments. Look how good I am. Because no one keeps the Ten Commandments anyway. God gave, God, God didn't give the law to justify man. God gave the law to show these are the boundaries I want you to live in. And these are for your good. God wants us to appreciate the laws that he gives, that they're for our good. God loves us. And the laws he gives, as every parent has laws for their own children to follow, is for their good. Parents, if you're a parent, you create laws for your child. And the reason you do that is because you love your children. You don't want your children being hurt or to hurt each other. And God has created laws for his own people. And that's the operative phrase here. His people. He knows that those who don't believe in him will continue to do whatever they want. He's also fully aware that unless um, they first come to believe in him and to know what he expects of them, they'll continue along their particular path. But God has higher expectations of his people. Because if you say you know God, then if you do the same as the other people who don't know God, then those words are empty. You can't say you know God and do the same as everyone else. God has higher expectations of you. In fact, the Bible says that if you are his child, God will judge you more severely. Not because he's going to throw you into hell, but he's going to judge you. So I have expectations of my child. I don't have expectations of other children, other people's children. That's their job. So God disciplines his children when they do wrong. That's because he loves us. So God has high expectations of his children. Now I've seen many times at, at, at children's parties and those types of environments when children get together and you get to watch how they interact and you also watch how the parents interact with their children. And if you see a particular child, for example, um, being nasty to another child, or a child who's very selfish, because children can be very selfish, <clears throat> and they and they steal something from another, they take something from another, another child, and that child begins to cry, the parents will, in, 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 in certain circumstances, say, don't be nasty, give it back. That's because they want their children to learn how to be nice and kind to other, other children as well. And that's God's expectation of us. He wants us to be kind, to be nice, to be loving. He wants us to have his character. That's why God tells us to do the things that he wants to do. <clears throat> In Psalm 82.3, God says, and we've been looking at the, the, the vulnerable ones, right? So the, the, the ones that were mentioned already were widows and, and fatherless. But in Psalm 82.3, God says, defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Why do you think organizations like the Salvation Army came into play? You know, most of the things like Red Cross and those things came because Christians had a desire to help those who are vulnerable. They read verses like this, defend the poor and the fatherless. Most of the orphanages in the world are Christian. Defend the poor. Defend the fatherless. Do justice to those that are afflicted, to those who have suffered at the hands of other people and those that are in need. Look out for them. 
I don't want you just not to do bad to them. I want you to do good to them. God clearly desires his people to live in a society that doesn't take advantage of the vulnerable, but in fact helps and blesses those that are helpless. That's the type of God that he is. God doesn't ask us to do things that he himself is, is, doesn't do. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 with me for a moment. Just so, just so we stick on this point. This is the type of nation that God wanted for his people. For those that are weak and vulnerable, those that are in need. Now, like I said to you before, there wasn't a social security in, uh, in Israel when they, when they moved into Palestine and, uh, and began to establish themselves as a people. <clears throat> God says, in Leviticus 19.9, and when you reap the harvest of your land, so, so when you, you grow your crops and you reap and you, you bring in the harvest, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thine harvest. I don't want you, okay. So God says to his own people, oh, you know, when you, when you plant all your wheats and crops and things, you know what, I want you to leave the edges I don't want you to touch the edges at all. I want you to leave them there. And in fact, I don't, I don't want you going back a second time or things that have dropped on the ground. I don't want you to pick those up. The first time you go through, the first time you, you pick up those crops, that's it. Take whatever you can take and I want you to leave all the corners and I want you to leave whatever's fallen on the ground, all the wheat or whatever it is, corn, I want you to leave it there. In verse 10, he says, And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard. You got, you got a vineyard? You're growing grapes, olives, whatever it is? I want you, thou shalt not, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard. Look what he says here. Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Wow. I want you to leave. You, Lord, you, I grew all this crop. You want me to leave all the stuff? You don't want me to, to, to harvest it? No. I want you to leave it for the poor. I want you to leave it for the stranger, which means someone who's come into your country is not even your own, your own type of person, a different, a foreigner. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. This is what I expect of you. This is what I'm like with them. I bless you, but I make sure they've got as well, even though they don't believe in me. Look at verse 34 of Leviticus 19. He says, but the stranger that dwelleth with you. Now listen to these words. The stranger, the foreigner who comes in, who doesn't even believe in God. The stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you. And thou shalt love him as thyself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Love him. Love the stranger. Love the person who's a foreigner like you love your own people. Isn't that an amazing verse? You know, every foreigner who lives among you is to be loved. You're to leave food for them. You're meant to leave food for them. So every, every Israelite, every person who owned land was called to leave a portion of their land for those that were in need, who couldn't look after themselves. And God leaves no room for racism in this verse. Doesn't leave any, any room at all. In fact, God doesn't leave room for racism in the Old or New Testament. When Jesus um, was ministering to the people, 
and he was teaching them. Certain people came up to him and they wanted to try to test him. And they said, well, you know, God, Jesus says, no, love your neighbor, do good. to." And, and they came up to him and they said, well, who is my neighbor? Come on, who is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answered and said, you know what? Let me give you a story. Let me tell you, explain to you exactly what a neighbor is. And then he brings up what we call the good story of the Good Samaritan. Who, and Samaritans were people who were seen to have false doctrine, were half-caste people, and had been rejected by the Jews. And Jesus says, let me show you what a real neighbor is. And then he speaks about a Jew that had been overtaken by um, by thieves, had been beaten up and left for dead, and it was the Samaritan that came and rescued him. Who's your neighbor? Everyone. Everyone's your neighbor. You know, um, when Cain asked, well, am I my brother's keeper? The answer was obviously yes. He's your brother. Of course he's, you're, you're, you're called to look after your brother. But by the same token, we need to understand that we are not just our family's keepers. We are everyone's keepers. God loves justice, and part of justice is actually seeking the good of other people, even though they don't agree with us, even though they may hate us. In fact, Jesus says, do good to them that hate you and despitefully use you. He says to pray for those who are not like you. In fact, those who hate you to pray for them, to want good for them. Christian, remember, we're not called to point the fingers at everyone and say, Evil person, evil person, evil person. God calls us to pray for those people, to want good for them, that God would intervene and open up their eyes. If we know something to be true that's going to benefit, that's good for them, we should want the same for them as much as they may even hate us. God wanted every part of his society to be just and perfect. Look at, a, look at Leviticus 19, 35 and 36 now. He says... To his own people. All right, when you're running, when you have a business and you're selling stuff and you've got your scales and someone says, Can I have a kilo of uh, of wheat, please? To make bread. And you got your scale that going on over there. He says in verse 35, You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. In meteor, which means in measuring, in weight or in measure, in the amount. Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hinge shall ye have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. God says to these people, I want you to have just scales. I don't want you to steal a grain of, uh, of wheat from someone else. I want my people to be perfectly just. So doing justice comes to means that we come to understand that God has given us laws because he wants us to be just like him. And through those laws, God actually reveals his own nature. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 15 and 16, God says, See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil. They're the two things I've set before you. It's your choice. You, you either take life and good or you have death and evil. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that 
thou mayest live and multiply, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land whither thou goest to possess it. God's desire is to bless mankind. That's why he gives commands and statutes that people may live and that they might bless, be blessed and multiply. The laws that God has given to mankind are for his good, not for his bad. And the laws show God's amazing character. So doing justly means to apply the law in a just manner. Now, applying the law can be tricky sometimes when our fallen natures come into play. You know, everyone in this world seeks justice. Everyone wants justice when they've been wronged. In fact, justice seems to be something built into every one of us. Maybe it's because we've been made in the image of God. But when it comes to justice for our own wrongs, that we've done to other people, we don't want justice. We don't demand justice from God when you do something wrong to someone else or when you sin. You don't demand it. No, 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 no. You want forgiveness and mercy. A person's own wrongs never seem as bad as other people's wrongs. This is because we have a fallen nature. We like to have two different scales of justice. One for ourselves, which has mercy, and when someone does something wrong to us, we want justice for them, and hard. That's our fallen nature. That's not God's nature. But a person who believes and has come to be born again by the Spirit of God can actually apply the law properly. If he first realises the law needs to be applied to himself before even thinking about judging others. Because if we judge others and we demand justice for ourselves and we don't demand justice when we do wrong, well, that makes a person a hypocrite. God doesn't like hypocrites. So where does it leave us? Well, you can love the law. You can love it. You can see it for the beauty that it has, that it is. And you can encourage others to do it because it's for their good and for the glory of God. Even though we may not be perfect ourselves. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, any, it, I hope, oh, I can't get this interaction. I was going to ask you a question. You can't even respond to me. But anyway, um, uh, Winter Olympics. If you've ever seen the, the ski jumps that they have at the Winter Olympics, there are these massive slopes that go all the way down and they come up and that the, the skier or the person who's making the actual jump needs to be perfectly aligned when they come off that thing and then they have to perfectly land without obviously uh, falling into a heap or even killing themselves. That's a, and it's incredibly a, a, a finicky thing to do, difficult thing to do, and it requires a huge amount of practice, okay? Um, but let's, let's imagine that there's a, a world-class champion. He's a, the, the world record holder. He's the one who won the gold medal at the Olympics. And then he sees, and he's been doing his practicing, and on the same ramp, there's someone who's maybe been doing it for six months, 
and they're and they're not not steady on their feet. They may land on their head and they might do whatever. The ski jumper himself, who's a gold medalist, realizes also that he's never perfect too. Because this is to 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 do ski jumping, it's it's a matter of degrees. It's very rare you get rare you get a perfect jump. So what he understands is that even he, after all his experience and all his medals, is not perfect. So what he does, instead of hitting the person and making fun of the other person and saying, you're no good, he actually says, let me encourage you on how to do this better. I learned this. This is one of the techniques that I learned. Try this one. You see, when it comes to judgment, God doesn't want his people who are already not perfect. There's no Christians perfect. He doesn't want his people spending time pointing the finger at other Christians and other people who aren't even saved, don't even know the law. In fact, what he wants them to do is to say, you know what? I'm a bit better at this than you. Let me show you how you can do this better. Let me show you the beauty of this thing. So you encourage righteous judgment. We don't judge others and condemn them when we ourselves are not perfect at that thing, just like the gold medalist wasn't perfect himself. Because only God is perfect. And that's the way the law is to be used. The law is to be used to encourage other people. First of all, understand that we're not perfect. But second of all, in our meekness, in our imperfectness, we are to encourage other people who are less perfect to become even more like us. To surpass us. The Lord tells us in John chapter 7, verse 24, judge not according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. You know, with the advent of social media, you know, with things like Facebook and uh, Instagram and all these different things where people are communicating with each other every minute of the day with Twitter and those types of things, it's amazing to see how much people judge other people how they tear them down where they don't agree with their their position. The world is a very judgmental place. And for Christians, it shouldn't be so. In fact, people judge other people on the basis of a five-minute YouTube video. I know that Christians are watching plenty of YouTube videos. And there are plenty of videos that, you know, go for five or ten minutes and they've just proven a point about someone else. Be aware of how much you give credence to a five or ten minute YouTube video that seems sympathetic to your worldview, but may not have the truth in it. Yes, plenty of YouTube videos, when you watch them, actually sound as if they've, they've actually said something true. They may even present some sort of evidence for it as well. But I would encourage everyone, before you make judgment about anything, anything, even if it's even if it's backing up you and your uh, opinions, go and dig further. And what I mean by digging is not watching more YouTube videos to find out the actual facts about something before you make the judgment. Because Christians are also guilty of passing on misinformation and lies and deception. Those that are unsaved only watch 
and only listen to the things that back them up, the things that, that mock Christianity or, 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 or speak rubbish. Christians shouldn't be the same. God asks us not to judge by appearance or by 10-minute video or by hearsay of other people, even by other Christians. But God wants us to judge righteously. You know what? If you don't have all the facts in the matter, or if you're not fully aware of the facts, withhold judgment. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13 says, He that answereth the matter before he heareth it, which means fully understand it and have all the facts, it is a folly and a shame to him. In most cases, where we, we don't have all the facts or have not had sufficient time to examine the matter, or just hearing someone's opinion about it, or hearing another Christian say, oh yeah, I heard this. Um, it's better to withhold judgment. When we judge someone else, because someone else has come to us with possible gossip, then we've taken gossip to the next level. We've judged on a rumor and a gossip. In fact, Jesus knew the tendency of man to judge others and to treat them more harshly than themselves. He knew our fallen nature, that you want to condemn other people who don't agree with you. And the goal is to make them look as bad as they possibly can be, even to accuse them of things they probably haven't even done, as long as it makes, as long as it matches what, what, what I'm saying. Now, God doesn't want us to demonize everyone else. In fact, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, he says, judge not that ye be not judged. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? You see, the point is to judge righteously. It doesn't mean we condemn other people. To judge righteousness means even if you disagree with someone, you still want the best for them. You still want them to find out what is right. You will go out of your way to help them to understand it by the grace of God. And James puts it this way in James 1, 19 to 20. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. God doesn't call his people to be full of wrath towards other people. But you may say, well, God doesn't God want me to judge righteously? Of course he does. But we must firstly be in a position to be the judge. To be in a position where we have the information to judge. Or to be asked to judge in a matter. And when we've properly heard from both sides, because there's always two sides to an argument, Paul says this is the type of judgment. But it always allows the other party to express their opinion as well, to give their testimony. Where does God want us to judge? God's very clear about where God wants to do all the judging. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me because this is a critical verse. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. 
It says there, let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Therefore, let us not therefore not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way, in his brother's way, which means he's judging himself, that he's not causing his brother to fall, that he's not putting something in, in his in his uh in front of him that will cause him to do the wrong thing, that he's not setting a bad example for his brother, which includes judging. In 1 Corinthians 11.31, where we have communion and we're looking forward to that day and we can, we can sit down and enjoy the Lord's table again, it tells us for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. God wants us to judge. Where does God want us to do all the judging and the pointing of the finger? At ourselves. He wants to first apply those rules to ourselves. And God wants us to, rather than pointing the finger at other people, spending time actually pointing fingers, God wants us to do our very best to do justice in our own lives and reflect his character in the world. Can we do that perfectly all the time? Well, no. There is no Olympic champion that does it perfectly every time. But they strive for it. And the Apostle Paul says, this is the way our attitude that we must have. We must be single focused on doing that which is good, avoiding the sin, because sin is bad. We can't do it perfectly all the time. But by the grace of God, we can do what he enables us to do. And that depends on how much we trust and depend on him. And this is the thing we call faith. To do justice in this world requires us to have faith in God, to have faith that he loves us, to have faith in his justice, to have faith in his grace that he gives us what we need, to have faith in his promises. Because the law never justified anyone. The law is good because it's designed to protect us and to glorify God, but the law was never designed to justify us before God, which is why we needed Jesus to justify us. Galatians 3.11 says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for that the just shall live by faith. Do you have faith this morning? Faith that comes that that comes from a belief that God is a merciful judge, that he is perfect in his ways, that he wants your good and the good of other people. A God who loved us so much that he has sent his son to come and rescue us from our own weaknesses and our own sin. If you've put your faith in the Lord, then go and live justly in this world. Go and do justly in this world. Learn more of God's ways and apply them in your life. Allow his justice to live in you and seek to do justly to other people. Encourage other people to do good as God sees it. 
And if his justice lives in you, then you will, as we will see in the coming weeks, you will love mercy and you will walk humbly with him. I pray that you have that relationship with him this morning. I pray that your sins have all been forgiven and that you are a merciful person, that you seek justice for others, that you want the good for other people and that you are a shining example of this God who has revealed himself in the pages of this book we call the Bible. God bless you. If there is anyone who is listening to this sermon who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior this morning, I invite you to, to do that. To understand that you cannot save yourself. To understand that even though your desire may be to get to heaven, you can't reach it. You can't be perfect. God requires perfection. And in our weakness and shortfalls, God has been able to fill that gap with his perfect son and a perfect sacrifice and that blood that was shed for you. And all it takes for you this morning to have a home in heaven, not to have to work for it and not to, and not to wonder one day whether you'll be there or not. God has told you that if you put your faith in Jesus, you shall be saved. So this morning, I invite you, if you don't know Jesus, to simply pray and say, Lord, I understand I'm a sinner. I know I can't save myself. But I believe that you love me and you continue to love me and that you showed that love by sending your son to come and rescue me and he willingly gave himself on that cross for me. I believe that he is your son, that Jesus Christ is your son and that he rose again on the third day and I put my eternal soul, I trust him for my salvation. Please save me today and be my Lord. If you prayed that prayer this morning and you prayed it from your heart, then God guarantees you a home in heaven with him. He will come and live within you and make you a whole new person. God bless you.